Hi everyone, and it's wonderful to be back, and it's wonderful to be able to share Pirkei Avot with you. Pirkei Avot is a weekly shiur that I do. I don't just uh, do it in the summer, which is the season of Pirkei Avot. I do it throughout the year. And we're now on Perik Base, and we're studying today the sixth Mishnah of Perik Base. We continue with the sayings of Hillel Hazokain, Hillel the Elder. Uh, just to remind you that if you've missed previous Pirkei Avot Shiurim, you can of course go on my website www.rabbidunner.com and you can just uh, go on Pirkei Avot, either do a search for Pirkei Avot, or if you use the drop-down menu you can see there's a Pirkei Avot tab and you can listen to or watch the, all the back versions or back uh, broadcasts of the Pirkei Avot Shiurim that I've been giving for some time. And I'd also like to recommend that you subscribe to my YouTube channel, which you can do by clicking on the icon at the bottom of the screen. Perik Base Mishnavov, a very strange and rather unusual Mishnah <coughs> for a number of reasons. Let's just dive into it and let's see what it says. Hillel Hazokin, Af hu achas One day, he was walking on the banks of a river or lake, and he saw that a skull floated, a human skull floated, had floated to the top of the water. Omar Law. So Hillel spoke to the skull. Now, I don't know if this story actually happened, or if it's one of those myths and legends that sometimes the Talmud shares with us, but there's a very profound message here. He spoke to the skull and he had a very important message for the skull and for us. He said, and he spoke, of course, in Aramaic because that was his lingua franca, that was his uh, vernacular. He didn't speak Hebrew on a day-to-day -day basis. He spoke in Aramaic. He was from Bovel. He had come from Bovel, remember, that he lay on top of the roof and he was... Uh, uh, if, uh, he was at the skylight because they wouldn't let him to the Beis HaMedrash to listen to Shmaya and Aftalion. And they discovered him there almost frozen. And he came in, of course, he emerged as their primary disciple and he took over as head of the Sanhedrin. Anyway, he said to the skull, Al da'ateft atfuch. Mr. Skull, he said. Do you know why you were drowned? Because you were a drowner. You were a person who did terrible things and therefore a terrible thing was done to you. But you should know that the end, the final judgment for those who drowned you is for themselves to be drowned. The Mepharshim are very taken with this um, saying from Hillel, this quotation, this very difficult to understand quotation from Hillel Hazokin. What exactly is he doing talking to a skull? What does he mean that he who is drowned will be drowned and the drowners will themselves be drowned? What message is he trying to convey? And the consensus is that this is presented to us as a story and perhaps the story happened. But what really is going on here is that Hillel is, his, is expressing his faith 
in God's system that there's no such thing ultimately as injustice. And perhaps the skull triggered in him a desire to share this idea, but the idea stands on its own. It doesn't need the story of the skull to be taken seriously or to be considered seriously. And that is, we see terrible things happen. We, if somebody would walk past a body of water and would see a skull floating, they would say, oh my gosh, that person was drowned, that's a terrible thing. Look, there's a, a dead body, there's a human that drowned. We don't know anything about that human body that drowned and why, why they ended up in the water. And Hillel is saying that nobody ends up in any particular situation for no reason. And we may not understand that reason. And that reason may be completely beyond us, beyond our comprehension, that we will never be able to comprehend it. And it may bother us and plague us and undermine our faith at all times. And yet we have to have faith that God does things for a reason. There must have been a reason for that person, whatever it may have been, to be in that situation. And I have full faith that God could explain it to me if I would challenge him. But then we should know that those who feel that they can mete out vigilante justice, those who were the drowners of the drowned, who was himself a drowner, will in the end themselves be drowned. Don't ever imagine that you are immune to the bad that you do because there is some justification. And that is one of the great challenges of people who feel that they can take the law into their own hands. They feel, I can do whatever I want. I'm right. I've spoken about this before. I'm a collector of polemics. I collect specifically Jewish community polemics any time a rabbi or a community official had something negative to say about some other rabbi or community official. I have the publication or manuscript relating to that particular disagreement, polemic and controversy. And there is a running theme. People who write polemics, who engage in polemics, always want to justify the fact that they are engaged in this very difficult argument. And they will say, listen, the truth is I'm a very peaceful person. I'm telling you, this is repeated in multiple polemics from many different communities and countries across the world and throughout Jewish history. I'm not a polemicist. I'm a wonderful person, peaceful. You should see me at home. I hug my children. I'm nice to my friends. I always sponsor Kiddush in shul. But in this situation, I feel obligated because I feel that it is right for me to attack and challenge the person who has done whatever it is that this particular author feels is wrong. And what's more, and that in and of itself is an indicator of what I'm about to say. There is no controversy that I've ever come across, no polemic, no disagreement, where both sides are completely right and both sides are completely wrong. And let me tell you what I mean. There's always something that you can say about somebody else, about the way that they have behaved, which in some sense, objectively speaking, we could agree with you. They didn't behave towards you or towards others in a particular way that you think is right. Or they didn't say or write or perform in the way that you think is right or that objectively speaking is right. But you take that very small seed and you allow it to sprout, to sprout into a huge tree. 
and that tree grows into a forest. And you take the one thing that you can say which is correct and you turn it into a massive controversy, polemic, disagreement, argument. Something that can smoulder on for weeks, months, years, who knows how long. And it all started from something which was somewhat justified, but it turned into something that was unjustified. And that here is the message of Hillel. Hillel wants to tell you that just because... You were the instigator of the demise of the skull floating in the water who had done something wrong that made them deserve to die or to drown, to be obliterated. Doesn't mean that you are free from any sin because those who are the drowners will themselves be drowned. Those who are right in attacking or causing the demise of those who are wrong, are very often themselves caught up in a web of wrongness in order to perpetrate something that may, at its core, be right. And therefore, Hillel is telling you, beware, there is justice. God is the ultimate arbiter of justice. And even when you are right, sometimes you can be wrong, very often. And therefore, you must be extremely careful. You must do everything that you do with the ultimate care to ensure that you don't fall into the trap of being the drowner who gets drowned. Let's go on to the next Mishnah, Mishnah Zion. Hu Hoyo'eme. We come now to the end. It's a very, very famous, often quoted Mishnah. The last sayings of Hillel Hazokin. And obviously he's speaking in his day and he's speaking about the re- realities of his time when people who were wealthy were obese, uh, as you're going to see, and they owned slaves and they had many wives. And he's talking about material benefits of the physical world, how people behave in that situation and whether or not it's to any long term benefit. The Mishnah says, Hillel told us, Marbe Bosar, Marbe Rima. Somebody who feels, I'm a very wealthy person, and therefore I can eat as much as I want, and they become extremely obese, which in ancient times was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of success. Somebody becomes very wealthy and therefore very fat. Marberima. All you're doing is giving more food for the worms when you die. We're going to see this reflected elsewhere in Perke Avot. Never forget the day of your death. Never forget that you are a mortal being. And no, notwithstanding your capacity to eat and put on weight, ultimately we all end up in the same place. So don't take any pride in the fact that your weight is some ta- somehow an expression of your wealth. Now we're not, you know, we're in, in our days it's quite different. By the way, Abarbanel has a very interesting shot considering he, list, he, he lived in the 15th, um, in, in, sorry, in the 16th century. But uh, he says... He actually was in the 15th, end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century. He says, Marbe, Bossa, Marbe, Zima, somebody who gets very fat is going to cause himself enormous health problems and will send himself to an early grave. He seems to have been uh, conscious of the fact that being overweight was unhealthy. And therefore, he, adv- he says that Hillel's advice is don't allow your wealth to make you believe that when you're fat, you're going to be immune to the 
ultimate indignity of humanity, which is, of course, our mortality, the fact that we can die. That's a Barbanel's pshat. But we see here something which Hillel wants to stress, which is that the trappings of wealth, those things which will identify you as wealthy and successful in the material sense, ultimately have no benefit, no real long-term benefit, and in fact cause you great harm. The next piece is, he says, marbe nechosim marbe do'oga. People say, okay, I'm going to acquire wealth, and then I'm going to acquire myself some, some more wealth. Somebody who has 100 wants to have 200. If you have 200, you want 400. doesn't matter how much you have, you always want more. And somehow you think at the back of your mind, you just, maybe the front of your mind, you justify all this by saying, well, if I'm wealthy, I'm successful, I'm well-resourced, everything's going to be fine, then I can relax. No such thing. You'll never be able to relax. In fact, the more you have, the less relaxed you will be. The more uh, problems you will encounter, because the material world is a broken world. And the material world notwithstanding the fact that it can give you great benefits, the more you own and the more you acquire, the more brokenness will be under your jurisdiction. And you'll have to deal with that brokenness. And that being the case, rather than it bringing tranquility, it will bring problems. Mar ben chosim, mar oga. The more possessions you have, the more problems you will have. Marbe Noshim, Marbe Kashofim. This is a very interesting one. In those days, somebody who was wealthy could afford to marry more than one wife. And you think to yourself, oh, it's fantastic. I'm married. However many wives it is, I'm so successful. You're a fool because you, all you're doing is you're creating a disparity between different wives. You're creating conflict and they're going to want to ingratiate themselves with you. And this applies not just to wives, but to people who are associated with you, hangers-on, people who are around you, who have no interest in your benefit or in your welfare, but only in their own. And you've created that situation by allowing it to happen. Your wives, kashofim, by the the way, means witchcraft. Witchcraft in the sense not necessarily uh, of doing things, you know, casting magic spells, but sorcery, or underhandedness by creating situations where duplicity needs to be employed in order for one wife to gain the upper hand over another. That is what you have created. You felt, you thought that by having more possessions and by being able to display the trappings of your wealth, you would be more successful. We know from Shlomo HaMelech, by the way, an ancestor of Hillel. Hillel was descended from David HaMelech. We know from Shlomo HaMelech that he had many wives and it caused him enormous problems towards the end of his life. Marbe Shefochois, Marbe Zima. Somebody who engages many maidservants, that's female slaves, and thinks, well, you see, I managed to demonstrate my extreme uh, uh, wealth by having so many possessions, including these female slaves. All that's going to happen is there's going to be sexual immorality. Because either among themselves or with others or with you. You are a person who is now vulnerable. Your wealth has opened up a vulnerability in in the sense that you have engaged all these women. They are vying for your attention and um, they are not honorable 
And apparently in ancient times, one of the ways a slave woman could become freed was if she married her master. And therefore they're going to make every effort to ingratiate themselves with you in such a way that uh, you will behave in a sexually immoral fashion with them. And that is not appropriate. So you thought, you thought that your money and your wealth and your material possessions would ease your life and make you able to devote more of it to spiritual pursuits. In fact, it has, uh, it has diverted your attention away from where you should be. Marbe avodim, marbe gozel. The more servants you have, the more theft there will be. Again, it's uh, another aspect of those who are working for you that they're going to steal from you. And you have no guarantee that if they steal from you, that they're not going to ruin you. So it's a, a, another aspect of the Marbe Nechosim, Marbe Oga. Hillel wants to paint that side of the coin before he comes to the crux of the Mishnah, which is Marbe Torah, somebody who increases their knowledge and their devotion and their study of Torah. Marbe Chaim, they have more life. In other words, not Marbe Rima, like somebody who gets fat. Not the fact that you are hastening your death, but you are um, enhancing your life. You know, we say, I've spoken about it as well, that there's this concept of arichas yomim, of lengthening your days. You, if you put more into your days that are worth something, that is worth something, that is worthy of your living, then you have lived longer. It doesn't necessarily mean that the time that you live is longer, but the time in which you lived was used more uh, purposefully, and therefore it is as if you have lived longer. If some, for example, if somebody's awake during the day and they spend most of their day concerning themselves about the next meal they're going to eat, or the next business deal they're going to be engaged in, or the next who knows what that they're going to be doing, which is going to enhance their material existence, then they haven't devoted their time to their primary purpose, which is being a servant of God, being an Eved Hashem. And if you devote your time to Torah study, if you devote your time to spiritual pursuits, the more hours in the day that you do that, the more hours you have lived. Mar Bechaim, that's true life. And by the way, it's not just Chaim in Olam Hazer. It's not just Chaim in this world. It's Chaim in Olam Haba. It's Chaim in the next world as well. So your Mar Bechaim has a double connotation. It's Chaim in Olam Hazer and Chaim in Olam Haba. Marbe Yeshiva, Marbe Chachma. Those who sit longer with scholars and with other people in the know as to what Torah study and God's existence means, Marbe Chachma, they will become wiser people. Be patient. Don't think that you can learn everything in a second. Don't think that everything that you need to know can be read on the back of a matchbox or on the back of a cereal packet. You need to devote long, hours to sitting and studying and devoting yourself to acquiring the knowledge, the knowledge of Torah and the knowledge of your spiritual purpose in order for you to truly be called a Talmud Chacham, somebody who is wise. Marbe, uh, marbe Yeshiva, Marbe Chachma. Marbe Eitza, Marbe Tevuna. People who are never shy to ask a question, who are never shy to inquire where they don't understand something, they are the people who have greater understanding. Don't ever be shy to poke around for information when you're not quite sure what something means. Don't ever be shy of seeking guidance, of seeking knowledge from others. Even 
and it's not necessarily true that everyone is brighter than you, even if they're not as bright as you, they may have greater knowledge than you, they may have greater wisdom through experience than you do. And in that situation, marbe eitzah marbe tuvuna, seek out the guidance of others, the counsel of others, and then you will come to a better and greater and clearer understanding. Marbe tzedakah marbe shalom. Those who don't use their wealth to hoard it for themselves, but are willing to share it with others. Whatever money that they have, they're willing to share it with others. It is a recipe for social harmony. That is the true um, uh, recipe for social harmony. Not when money is grabbed away from you, or when you're forced not to have anything because, let's say, there's a communist system or a system where money is taxed to such an extent that you don't have enough left for your own needs. But if you have money for your own needs, whatever they may be, and you don't have to want everything as we saw before from Hillel, you don't have to want the ultimate in life. If you have money enough for your own needs, and at the same time you have money to share, share it, find those who need it, give it to them so that there will be peace. And shalom, by the way, shalom doesn't just mean peace, it means completeness. The world is fulfilled, the world is more perfect, shalem, if there is tzedakah, if there is righteous charity, if there is the type of charity that seeks the harmony of humanity. That is the type of charity. Don't give charity because you want to create machloikas. Don't, cre- don't give charity because you want to perpetuate difficulties and disharmony. Your charity should always be aimed at making sure that people can survive in life if they don't have the means to support themselves fully. That is the type of tzedakah Hillel is talking about. Marbe tzedakah, marbe sholay. Now, somebody could say, well, I've spent my whole life gaining a good name. I'm now very well considered and it's a marvellous thing. You know, that goes with you to your grave. There's, I've never seen a gravestone where somebody's criticised. You know, everybody on their gravestone on their matseva it says this was a good man and we remember him fondly some of the messages are longer some are shorter but there it is on a gravestone in a cemetery that's a good name it's very very important but if that's all it's about it's a rather selfish act because it's going to die along with you however if you acquire the words of torah if it's not just about being a person of good standing but being a person of great Torah knowledge, that doesn't die with you. That's something that you take along with you and it's perpetuated in heaven for you and through your descendants who continue in the path of Torah after you've gone. That is the ultimate. A shame tov is very, very important. It's foundational. It's an extremely important platform for who you need to be. Never be a person who has a bad name. But if that's going to be your ultimate destination, then it has a shelf life. And that shelf life, the limitation of it is your own lifetime. However, if you are a person who studies the words of Torah, who is interested in elevating yourself spiritually through the words of Hashem as found in his Torah, then that is something that you carry with you for an eternal life, both in terms of your own neshama, that you're going to have it in Shamayim, but also in terms of your children and descendants who will continue in the path of Torah long after you have gone. We'll leave it here. Thank you.